God indeed is. Amen. Thank you, ladies. God indeed is faithful, and he's worthy to be praised. Uh, He's been very faithful to us uh, this year as a church family, and it's my privilege to welcome Pastor Dan Tupps. Pastor Dan will be joining us officially on August 15th as our pastor of discipleship, uh, but in his transition, uh, he agreed to uh, come preach on uh, this Sunday. So we're very warmly... Let me try that again. We're very glad to welcome Pastor Dan with us this morning. So welcome, Dan. Well, thank you very much, Pastor Mike. And I am so excited to be here today. Uh, I'm so, both my wife and I are so excited to uh, be able to join the uh, AIC family. And uh, any church that has a dance team is okay with us. Well, um, this is a very different role for me. Usually I'm up in front of 50 or 60 youth, and I had been doing youth ministry for 11 years um, up until this past May. And uh, I was serving, previously I was serving in a Chinese church, a Mandarin-speaking church, um, uh, ministering to English-speaking students. And... um, I finished in May and uh, been taking a break, and I've had the best job one could have. I've been a stay-at-home dad the past three weeks, and I'm really excited about that. Um, And then we're going to be going to the States for about six weeks, and then we'll be coming to join officially. uh, I'll be coming to serve as the discipleship pastor here at AIC. Um, And I think it was two weeks ago that Pastor Mike shared that he and his lovely wife, Melissa, celebrated their 12th wedding anniversary. And um, next Sunday, it just so happens that my wife and I will be celebrating our 12th wedding anniversary. And I think both us and the Roses will say that it is such a blessing to uh, be able to be married for so many years. In fact, Gita and I were talking about how long it has been uh, since we've been married, but it's gone by so fast. And so that really is a blessing. And I wanted to share with you just a picture of our wedding day. And that was 12 years ago, so yes, we got married at age 16. (laughs) That's sarcasm if you didn't get that. Um, But we were young, yes. And um, this was, if not one of, possibly the happiest day of my life. I successfully tricked the most beautiful woman in the world to marrying me. (laughs) Sorry, Gita, you're stuck with me now. Um, But when we said our vows, that sealed the deal. Well, it was um, the first couple years that I was here in Hong Kong doing youth ministry. We had a a citywide joint church youth group dodgeball tournament, and it was awesome. And uh, we made T-shirts and everything. And on the T-shirts, we we made a quote, put a quote from a movie um, that basically just said, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a dodgeball. And um, none of the kids had seen that movie. I think us youth pastors had all seen it and thought it was funny, and so it was an inside joke for us. But none of the youth got it. And so when we passed the T-shirts out afterwards, on the bus ride home, I was sitting with two middle school boys, and they were brothers, I think 11 and 13, something like that. And they were asking me the most obnoxious questions based on the T-shirt. So they said, oh, so if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a dodgeball. Does that mean if you can dodge a screwdriver, you can dodge a dodgeball? If you can dodge a hammer, can you dodge a dodgeball? If you can dodge a bullet, can you dodge a dodgeball? And I'm just sitting there so annoyed. And in the midst of all of those questions, the older brother 
got my attention. He said, Dan, so do you love God or Gita more? I was like, wow, that's a really good question. That's such a personal, uh, theological, spiritual, practical question. So I thought, this is a great teachable moment. So I said, well, that's easy. He said, really, it is? I said, yeah, I love God more than Gita. And he looked at me and he's like, really? I said, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Gita more than any other person on earth. But if I'm a follower of God, I have to love God more than my own wife. And he looks at me and he says, oh, so if you can dodge a missile, can you dodge a dodgeball? I was like, oh, (laughs) teachable moment fail. Well, I've always, over the years, that conversation has always kept coming back to my mind, not just because of the randomness of the questions and how it's so typical of middle school ministry, but I've really been struck by the question he asked. Do you really love God more than Gita? Who do you love more? And, of course, when I was the youth pastor, I gave what was supposed to be the right answer. Of course, you're supposed to love God more than anyone or anything. So I gave what was supposed to be the right answer, but as I've thought about it, I've been challenged. Did I give the truthful answer for me? Do I really love God more than my wife? Do I love God more than fill in the blank, more than my iPhone, sports, my computer, music, my dreams, my aspirations, my reputation, myself? Do I love God more than whatever? And I think that question is something that has been challenging us uh, even throughout this series on life, love, and the law through Deuteronomy. Do we love God more than anyone and anything else? And so we're going to wrestle with that a bit today. And uh, we're going to continue in this series, and we're going to move to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And this is, in all honesty, a very difficult, challenging passage. So we're going to do our best to read it, to wrestle with it, and try to glean some understanding from what God is telling us. Before we read this verse, these verses, um, this passage, let's just take a moment to pause, to pray, and to ask God to speak to us as we listen to his word. So let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is given so that we can have life and so that we can learn how that we can love you because you loved us first. God, it is such a privilege to be called your people, to be called your children, your sons and daughters, to be part of your family. So as we study this together this morning, I pray that we would not only hear your words, but we would learn and know how we can apply it to our lives and we can go and do it for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're not going to read the entire chapter, but we're going to read some verses that kind of encapsulate what the passage is talking about. And God says some pretty radical things in these verses. Okay, he says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, all of whom have names that we cannot pronounce, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. In other words, kill everyone. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. 
Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. You must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity, and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. The images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them, and do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it, for it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house, or you like it will be set apart for destruction. Regard it as vile and utterly detest it, for it is set apart for destruction. Wow, what is God saying here? He's basically saying to the nation of Israel that he's already given them the law, the Ten Commandments. He has told them that they're to love him with all that they are, and he's going to bring them to the land that he promised them he was going to bring them to. But there was a problem. There were already seven nations or seven people groups there. And God says, this is your land, this isn't theirs, so the only way you can overtake it is if you kill everyone. Man, woman, and child. Don't show pity, don't show mercy. If they're begging for mercy, begging for, pleading for their children, for their wives, you kill them all. In fact, in another passage we didn't read, he basically said, I'm going to give the, the kings over to you, and you're to wipe their names out from the history books. Leave no trace of them. And after you've killed them, take all of their sacred objects, their sacred temples, everything, and destroy it. Throw it in the fire. Don't take anything. Don't leave any trace. I am your God, and you're to destroy these nations utterly and completely. Wow, that's some pretty harsh stuff. Where's the so-called God of love, God of mercy, God of grace in the Bible? (laughs) Well, if we're going to understand this passage, we have to, first of all, understand the greater context of the surrounding passages. And last week, we learned from Pastor Mike um, about, uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, he did a terrific job explaining what is traditionally called the Shema, which is where it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus actually mentioned this in the New Testament, and it's recorded in two of the Gospels. And the first one is by Matthew. And in Matthew, he says that Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind instead of strength. Mark records Jesus saying something even different. He actually combines all of what was previously said. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You have three different passages here that say, technically, three different things. But I think this is the genius of God's Word, is that when we look at these passages as a whole, we see that it doesn't matter the specific ways we're supposed to love God. I think Pastor Mike put it well last week when he said, basically, what this is saying is, you can put in whatever you want there. God is saying, love me with all of your being, with all of who you are. And in uh, 
There's one scholar who has his own translation which says this, which I think summarizes it very well. He says, love God, your God, with your whole heart. Love Him with all that's in you. Love Him with all that you've got. You see, if we're going to be a follower of God, we have to love Him completely and totally and fully, no matter what. Even as crazy as it may sound, go and kill everyone, we're to follow God. Jesus puts it a little bit differently in Matthew chapter 6. He says, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. We can't love God and someone else or something else. We can't be a follower of God and love the things of this world. We can't follow God on Sunday and live our own life on Monday. We are to serve and follow God wholly and completely. We can't have it both ways. How many of you here are married? Please raise your hand. Okay, several of you. Now, how many of you can honestly say you love your spouse? No matter what, just raise your hand. That's the right answer. (laughs) For today, that's the right answer. Now, how many of you would say that you are also madly in love with someone else who's not your spouse, romantically in love? I better put my hand on That's, yeah. It doesn't work, okay? When Gita and I got married, we were making a commitment to say, I'm going to love you and no one else. That was part of our vows, okay, forsaking all others. It doesn't work to love your spouse and someone else. Um, if, if I was speaking in front of some teenage girls, I would put it this way. Um, well, first of all, I think the point is that following God requires total allegiance to Him. Okay? If we're going to be a follower of God, it requires total allegiance. When we get married, we are fully committing our lives completely to our spouse. When we become a follower of God, we are committing our lives completely to Him. Okay, now if I was speaking to a bunch of teenage girls, which some are here, um, I would say it like this. You cannot support Team Jacob and Team Edward. It's one or the other. Now, if you have no idea what this is referring to, God bless you. Thank you. And if you know and you've seen the movies, please repent. I know I have. Another way is I'm a sports fan, okay? I'm a sports fan. Now, one of the amazing things about being a stay-at-home dad is I get to actually watch the NBA Finals, okay? It's pretty awesome. And actually, literally, this was one of the best NBA Finals I've watched in my lifetime, at least as far as the competitiveness goes. Um, I'm not particularly a fan of either team, but it was a very competitive series. If you are a San Antonio Spurs fan... You are totally devoted to your team. You can't, you can't cheer for both. I mean, if you, if you were in the stadium cheering for both, you'd probably get kicked out or beat up. Um, if you're a Miami Heat fan, you can't cheer for the Spurs. You only cheer for the Heat, right? Well, um, I remember watching game six, which was the best game 
of the, of the NBA Finals. And it was a tremendous game. And actually, in the last couple minutes, it, it really seemed like the San Antonio Spurs were going to win. They were starting to pull away. They were starting to get a, a pretty sizable lead. And LeBron James, he just honestly wasn't being very clutch. He was making mistakes, turnovers, missing shots, and it looked like it was game over. And less than a minute left, it looked for sure. I thought, this is game over. It's, Spurs are going to win the championship. Well, it seems like a lot of the fans thought that as well. And so it turns out several fans left the stadium. And after they left, something happened. The heat began to slowly and slowly cut the lead until there was, the lead was only three points with uh, like less than 10 seconds left. And they tried a three-pointer, missed. They got the rebound, threw it out to Ray Allen, one of the best three-point shooters in the history of the NBA. He shoots it with five seconds left and makes it. The game is tied. It goes into overtime, and the Miami Heat actually win. Well, those fans who were outside, it turns out, they got word somehow. Either people texted them or they were checking the score, and they found out it was going to overtime. So they started to rush back to try to get back in the stadium. Well, apparently, the guards didn't let them back in because they have a no reentry policy, and they've had that for a long time. And, but they're like, but this is the playoffs. I paid so much money for the ticket. And they're like, that's tough. You left. And actually, some of the guards were quoted as saying, shame on you for leaving. Shame on you for giving up on your team. You deserve it. <laughs> and they actually had to call in the police because people were banging on the, on the doors and the windows trying to get back inside. Well, here in that game, you saw two different types of fans, right? All of them would say, yes, I'm a loyal Heat fan, aren't I? I come, I pay money, I cheer them on. Now, some of them, they stayed to the end, and they were going to be there even if they lost and say, I'm a devoted Heat fan no matter what. Good times, bad times, win or lose, I'm devoted. But some of the other fans were like, they were cheering when the Heat were winning, but when it came time when they thought they were going to lose, they just left. You know, I wonder if that's how we treat our relationship with God sometimes. You know, some of us, we are, you are, very devoted to God. Okay, no matter what, whether it's good times, bad times, um, fun times, hard times, you're there and you're going to be a follow, devoted follower of Christ no matter what. But sometimes many of us, many of you, maybe when times get tough, challenging, difficult, maybe it's easier to just kind of go and uh, give up on God. Maybe it's easier to go your own way and do your own thing because it's more comfortable, it's easier. If we're going to be a follower of God, it requires total allegiance to Him. And I think that's the picture that is being set there in Deuteronomy chapter 7. God is saying that if you're going to really be a follower of me, you're going to have to demonstrate that you love me more than anything and anyone else, meaning you, you have to do everything I say, and you can't leave traces of love for something else. Something else we see in Deuteronomy 7 is that our God is a holy God. Several of the songs we sang this morning repeated over and over because it's very scriptural that God is holy. Well, what does that mean? We use that term, we read it in the Bible, we, we sing it in songs. What does that actually mean? Well, there's two aspects 
of what it means that God is holy. First of all, there's kind of a negative aspect. Okay, the negative aspect is that God is completely separate from or free from all sin or evil or wickedness or everything that's bad. And on the positive side, it means that God is the essence of all what is good and pure. There is no spots, there's no blemish, there's no defect, there's no flaws with God. He is the essence of all goodness, perfection, purity. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, it says that God's eyes are so pure that He cannot even look on evil. And He can't tolerate, because of His holiness, He cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Because God is so holy, it compels him to not tolerate wrongdoing. It compels him to not tolerate sin. In fact, it expands on this in Psalm chapter 5. It says, For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome or cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Psalm 11 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, He hates with a passion. These two passages in Psalms have always bothered me. They have gone against so much of what I frankly, my view of God. And how many of you have heard or used the phrase, God loves the sinner but hates the sin? Okay, I've used that, heard that. Um, Or that God loves everyone. Okay, now those are true. They have biblical support. But these are two passages, and it says it more than once. And I've studied this in the Hebrew language God uses a very strong term that we use in English that would be considered a very strong term. He says he hates the wicked and those who do wrong. Now, I don't know what that means other than what God says. And I think the point is is that this demonstrates not that God is not a loving God, but that God is a holy God. That God is a God who is so holy, it compels him to hate sin. And for any of you who might think, well, this is talking about those wicked people over there. Those people who do that evil over there. I'm sorry, we're all sinners. We're all born with this problem of sin. And that's talking about you, that's talking about me. And we have to understand this. Um, before we can talk about how great God's love is. And I guess all I can say is agree with what the author of Hebrews says, that it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So why would this holy God, this so-called loving God, God of mercy, why would he command them to go and kill everyone? Men, women, and children. It seems so harsh. It seems so unfair. It seems so judgmental. Is this really the God that we want to serve, that 
this God that we want to worship? Well, as I mentioned, because God is so holy, he has a detest for sin, and also it requires that he punish sin. If he was a God who tolerated wickedness, who allowed people to commit murder, rape, and that, oh, that's okay. Sexual abuse, oh, that's okay. I love you anyway. If he was a God who tolerated that, how good and holy would he actually be? I believe that this was a picture and the only way that God could provide a picture for the nation of Israel as well as, by default, the rest of the world. The only way he could provide a picture to say that I am a holy God and because I'm a holy God, it requires holiness. And when there's not holiness, it requires judgment. It requires punishment. And so I know that it really stinks to be those people who were in those nations, who didn't receive God's mercy at the time. But it was the only way that God could provide a picture to say, this is how I treat sin. Because it's so serious. I am a holy God. And it offends me. One of the most frequently asked questions that I received as a youth pastor over the years was, how could a loving God send people to hell? How could a loving God send people to a place of eternal torment and literal torture. It doesn't make sense to them in their minds wrapping around that a loving God and hell. But as you think about it, if you really think about it, if God is so good and holy and loving and great, then it would necessitate there would have to be a hell. There's an author and and pastor named David Platt who wrote a book called Follow Me. And uh, he gives a a story about a friend of his who's an Arab follower of Jesus um, to kind of describe why there's such a serious punishment for sin. He says this, Azim, an Arab follower of Jesus, was sharing the gospel recently with a taxi driver in his country. The driver believed that he would pay for his sin only for a little while in hell, but then he would go to heaven after that. After all, he hadn't done too many bad things. So Azim said to him, If I slapped you in the face, what would you do to me? And the driver replied, I would throw you out of my taxi. Azim continued, If I went up to a random guy in the street and slapped him in the face, what would he do to me? The driver said, He would probably call his friends and beat you up. And Azim asked, what if I went up to a policeman and slapped him in the face? What would he do to me? The driver replied, you would be beat up for sure and then thrown into jail. Finally, Azim posed this question. What if I went to the king of this country and slapped him in the face? What would happen to me then? And the driver looked at Azim and awkwardly laughed. He, he told Azim, you would die. To this, Azim said, So you see that the severity of the sin's punishment is always a reflection of the position of the person who is sinned against. If you sin against an infinitely holy and eternal God, you are infinitely guilty and worthy of eternal punishment. And the driver thus realized that he had been severely underestimating the seriousness of his sin against God. Do we understand 
and recognize the seriousness of our sin? Do we understand and realize that we are not entitled to and worthy of God's love, but we're entitled to and worthy of his wrath and punishment because of our sin? And I think this is the picture that God is painting here in Deuteronomy chapter 7 for the nation of Israel. I'm a holy God. I demand total allegiance and sin needs to be punished. And it was a warning to them. And it's only when we understand the seriousness of our sin that we can finally understand the greatness of God's love. Paul finally says in Romans chapter 5, but God. This is the the phrase that Pastor Mike loves so much, which is one of the best phrases not only in the Bible but in all of literature. But God, even though He has every right as a holy God to destroy us, to condemn us, to, to punish us, But God doesn't do that. Instead, He demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were entitled to His love, He died to us. Not while we were worthy of His love, He died for us. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there's a phrase or or a, a saying that I've repeated over the years to the youth I've worked with that you will never understand the greatness of God's love until you first understand the greatness of your own sin. The fact that we're not deserving of His love and He gives us His love anyway. We're deserving of punishment, but He gives us forgiveness, eternal life, new life. That is great love. That is is the good news of the gospel. And this is what I believe the world needs to hear. That God loves us so much. He not only grants us salvation, it it didn't come freely. He took the wrath and judgment that was meant for us and poured it on His Son who didn't do anything. He willingly took that upon Himself. That is what God did for you. That's what Jesus did for you in your place on the cross. And that is the tremendous love that God has for us. Well, tucked away in the Deuteronomy 7 passage, it gives, God gives the reason for why He's giving these extreme commands. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. And throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, there's this theme that we are to be holy because He is holy. God says, be holy because I am holy. And notice, that does not say, do holy things. It says to be holy. You know, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Mike shared about the Ten Commandments, and Those are a guide for us. Those are symbolic things for us that these are the standards God has for us and we are to obey that. But just obeying the commandments isn't good enough. We don't take a list of the rules and say, I'm going to do this, this, and this. You know, there was a uh, rich man who came to Jesus and said, how do I have eternal life? What did Jesus say? Oh, just keep the commandments. And he said, I've done that. 
Now, I believe, without going too deep in that passage, but I personally believe that he was being truthful, that he had kept the Ten Commandments. But he realized there's something more. And Jesus did tell him there is something more. And he goes on to say, sell your possessions and give to the poor and follow me. And he can't do it. And the reason is because it's not that he didn't do the external things right. He had a heart problem. His heart loved something else. He couldn't fully devote to God. And we need to be holy, not by doing certain things, but by God's grace. You see, none of us can fully keep God's rules, God's law. In fact, I don't have the the passage here, but in Romans chapter 3, Paul talks about this. He basically says that the law was not given so that if you follow it, you'll be perfect. The law was given to prove you can't follow it. It's to reveal that you're a sinner. It's through the law, he says, that we become conscious of sin. That we can't be perfect before God. That we need God's grace. And by God's grace, if we're going to be a follower of Him, following God requires holiness in our lives. Now some people, back in Paul's day, really questioned him. They said, wait a minute. If following the law is not the way you please God and it's just by grace, then why should we obey the law at all? If, if that's the case, then why don't I just live a sinful life and just say, oh, God, please forgive me. I accept your grace. Then go and do something else sinful and say, oh, God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I accept your grace. And they thought that God's grace was a license to go and sin. But Paul said, that's absolutely ridiculous. It's actually the opposite. And if you think about it, or if I think about it, I'll I'll give an example. I know that at least from as much as humanly possible that my wife and my son love me unconditionally. I know that if I were to mess up, if I were to hurt them, if I were to um, do something wrong, they would forgive me. Okay, it may take some time depending on how bad I messed up, but they would forgive me. Okay? They love me unconditionally. Does that motivate me to, try to, to, to want to treat them like dirt? To come home to my loving wife and say the most harsh and evil things to her? To beat her? To beat up my son? I love you, kid. <laughs> you, know? you love me no matter what. No. The fact that I know that they love me unconditionally motivates me to want to love them back in the best way that I can, to want to please them, to want to do what's right for them. And it's the same thing in our relationship with God. God's grace motivates us to want to please Him, to want to live for Him. And if we're going to be a follower of God, it requires us to pursue holiness in our lives. And this is why... God said, don't take anything from these nations. Don't partake in their idols. Don't intermarry with them. Don't take the things that they treasure into your homes because all that's going to do is lead you further and further away from me. And you know, I was thinking about this. How do do we pursue holiness? Actually, I was thinking about, am am I pursuing holiness? What does that mean or look like in my life? You know, I think that I, like probably many people, 
maybe tolerate too much sin in my life. I accept it. I rationalize it. I give excuses for it. And sometimes it's very, very small things. For example, um, we went to go watch a movie not too long ago, and Star Trek, and um, we enjoyed it. But um, we always have to buy water because we get thirsty. And it's a lot cheaper when you buy it outside the theater. They kind of rip you off inside. So we decided we'd buy our own, and we, we took it inside. And I kind of jokingly was giving my wife a hard time. Like, should we do that? I don't know. It's against the rules. I'm a rules kind of guy. You know, that's an inside joke. Um, but after that, I really thought, is that the right thing to do? It says on your ticket stub, no outside food or drink allowed in the cinema. It says, post plastered on the wall when you enter, no food or drink allowed inside the cinema. Now, are we committing some big, horrible sin? On an earthly perspective, we're not killing anyone. But we're violating the law. We're violating the rule. Now, I can give every justification for why it's okay. Everyone does it. You know, it's, We're not the only ones. But I'm justifying, I'm rationalizing sin. We do that with so many things, don't we? When we rationalize the way that we think about things, our attitude towards people, oh, well, they're a jerk to me, I can be a jerk back to them. Well, they said this about me, I'm going to say this about them. We, we um, maybe tolerate wickedness in our entertainment. Think about the movies we watch, TV shows we watch. I'm a guy who loves TV, I'll admit it. It's the way that I unwind. I enjoy a good movie, good TV shows. But you know what? There's often where I can't watch something because Lucas is in the room and it's not appropriate for him. And I began questioning or wondering, well, wait a minute. If it's not appropriate for my son, maybe it's not appropriate for me. Now, not everything, okay, but maybe some things I need to think about. Is this even good for me? To watch Is this music even good for me to listen to? And is it right that I'm watching more TV than I am spending time in God's Word? You know, sometimes holiness isn't just about the things we do, but maybe it's about the things we don't do. I was writing the MTR um, earlier this week, and I usually listen to music or watch videos on my iPhone or whatever, and I finally took it off because my music was done, and I looked around, and I had a revelation, an epiphany. I had ridden the MTR literally thousands of times. I kind of calculated in my head. I, let's say 350 times a year, um, times two, because I go to work and back. That's 700 times a year for nine years. That's over 6,000 times, and there's probably been other times. It could be more than 10,000 times I've ridden the MTR. I have not had one not one meaningful conversation with someone on the MTR. And I looked around and I thought, how many of these people know Jesus? How many of these people has a Christian talked to on this MTR? Now, I'm not saying... Now, I, I could give excuses. Well, I, there's a language barrier. That's true. <laughs> There's a cultural barrier. They'd probably get freaked out if some white guy's talking to them on the MTR, trying to sell them something. And then there's all the other things. Well, I don't want to come across like that kind of Christian who just, you know, is pushy and obnoxious or crazy. 
But then I was convicted 10,000 times, and I, not one. Now, I'm not saying I should have 10,000 conversations, but I should have at least one, right? I guess what I'm saying is that if we are truly wanting to be a follower of God, it means we are to be totally committed to him, to understand he is a holy God, and we are to pursue holiness in our lives by the things we do, by the things we say, by the way we think. I don't know how this message or this sermon impacts you. To be honest, I struggled a lot with this message, with this passage. But I trust that God will speak to you through his word, that God will convict you, challenge you. And the only thing that I can do is preach his word and trust that the Holy Spirit would work in your life. So let's just take a minute to pause, to meditate, to think about what God has said to think on his words, let it sink in. And uh, let's take a moment to do that. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Let's just think about how does this impact you? How does this impact me? And then I'll say a prayer to close. Lord God, you are a God who requires total allegiance to you. You're a holy God who requires us to be holy as well. And God, on our own strength, we cannot attain such a standard. God, we need your grace. Lord, thank you for loving us so much that instead of just sending us all to hell, that you refrain from your judgment and you sent your son, Jesus, your son, who didn't do anything to die in our place. Lord, that is the epitome of what love is all about. God, forgive us for the times we've rationalized sin, we've tolerated sin in our lives. Lord, help us by your grace to pursue holiness. And Lord, forgive us for when we've sinned, for when we've messed up, for when we've fallen. Lord, we're going to continue to fall along the way. None of us have this figured out. I certainly don't. We just continually need your grace, your forgiveness. Thank you for giving us new life through your Son. And help us to live this new life in a way that brings you glory and brings others to know you as well. Lord, we want to live for you and give you and you alone all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.